welcome to Season 2 of New Creation Conversations, a podcast devoted to helping followers of Jesus live more fully as reflections of the new creation. I'm Dr. Scott Daniels, and I've spent the last 30 years as a pastor and professor, with one foot in university and seminary settings, and the other squarely in the life of pastoral leadership in the local church. I've worked hard to keep these two worlds that have so much in common and have a great deal to learn from each other from getting too far apart. It isn't easy. So each week, I sit down and have a conversation with old friends and new friends who are doing great scholarly work and hear how their study and insights might inform not only the mission of the local church, but the life of the everyday follower of Jesus as well. I still have a lot to learn to be all that Christ wants me to be. So thanks for joining me on these weekly explorations as we receive the grace we need to live into the new creation together. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 73 of New Creation Conversations. It's a joy for me today to get to have a conversation with one of my favorite young scholars and ministers, Dr. Henry Spaulding III, better known to his family and friends as Hank. Hank is the Associate Campus Pastor and Assistant Professor of Theology at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. He's an alum of Trevecca Nazarene University, has a Master's Degree in Theological Studies from Duke Divinity School, and has a PhD in Christian Ethics from Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Hank and I talk about the unique challenges of campus ministry, but we also talk about his two writing projects, one that's out and one that's in process. The project that's out is The Just and Loving Gaze of God with Us, Paul's Apocalyptic Political Theology, published two or three years ago by Whitfenstock Press. This book is an edited version of Hank's dissertation work, and it's an interesting look at the recent interest in the Apostle Paul by even non-Christian political scholars. And then Hank reflects on what they get right, but what they often misunderstand also about Paul's political theology and and what that says to us about how we should think about those things as well. The project that's forthcoming is under the working title Iconoclastic Sex. It's a quantitative study, but also a theological reflection on the problem of sex trafficking and its relationship actually to our Christian social ethics. It's a really fascinating study. Both are interesting works, and both are deeply connected to the vision of a new creation as well. It's always encouraging to me to get to connect with young scholars, and I'm really thankful for those like Hank who have a passion for deep theological reflection, but also a deep commitment to church ministry. I'm thankful that people like Hank are picking up the baton and carrying it forward. And so here's my new creation conversation with Dr. Hank Spaulding. It is a, a joy to get to have a conversation with a friend, uh, Henry Spaulding III. Hank, it is great to have a conversation with you today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, tell folks a little bit about, uh, first of all, tell them about your faith journey. Yeah, I um, I grew up... Uh, as a card-carrying member of the the church that I and I always jokingly told my friends who were not Nazarene that I am a third generation Nazarene on both sides of my family. Um, my mom's family um, grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina, and were Wesleyans, and they moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And when they did, there were not any Wesleyan churches around, so they became Nazarene. And my um, my father's side of the family. Uh, went to a Nazarene church. Uh, I think for most, if not all, of, of their of their lives. My father, my grandfather um, Henry the First, because I'm the third, uh, <laughs> uh, contemplated a call into ministry for a time, uh, and then eventually uh, my father uh, felt a call into ministry, and so 
um i've i've got quite some deep blood there and um i grew up so in a very nazarene home my dad was a pastor and before that a professor and uh, so i always grew up in the church and really am familiar especially with the church the nazarene and the rhythms and the smells i always say that like the smells of the holy are the things that kind of get me like that the smell of the the old wood on the pews or the pages of the hymnal things like that is something that's always ushered me into the holy but uh my own kind of like um i guess kind of excitement uh, for the faith and really kind of taking off in the faith was uh I went to a, a global, or not global, a, a U.S. and Canadian gathering of, of Nazarene youth called the uh, Nazarene Youth Conference in 2003 in uh, Houston, Texas, and um, got to hear some wonderful speakers um, like uh, Deirdre Brower at the time, Deirdre Brower Latz now, uh, and felt a strong call into the ministry at that point in time. And, um, you know, I would uh, think of it also as terms of like a kind of a uh, spiritual growth moment for me. And um, one uh, old West, old Wesleyans would probably use uh, or American Wesleyans, I guess would say the a sanctifying experience. And it was just, it was a holy moment and a lot of things I experienced throughout that week and um, really grateful for it. And um, I've, I've been a part of the faith and really deeply growing ever since and have really enjoyed the journey that God has called me on. Uh, some days are really difficult. <laughs> I won't lie. Yeah. But I think that's probably common for everyone who's uh, been in invited on such a such a journey as this. Yeah. And, and so talk a little bit more about, um, yeah, you come by the faith quite honestly in your family, but, but growing up in that kind of family, what were both the, the ways that that made that easy to lean into, but what were some of the challenges there too? I think uh, the thing that was really interesting about it, my dad was not only a pastor, he was a theologian and, and a brilliant one at that. And so I always remember like thinking that I had everything figured out and being very proud of that. <laughs> and I would, I would, I, I remember very clearly one night I, I thought, I told my dad very boldly, I said, I figured out Job, dad. And I told him my explanation, which I forget what it was at the time. And then my dad very graciously saying, well, what about this? <laughs> and it was a question <laughs> I hadn't even considered. Um, and I, I think in, in some sense, like, and, and he was never like cruel or overly bearing or angry at all. He's always very gracious in the way he interacted with me because he obviously knew a great deal more than me. But I think the advantage was, is that I learned not only to appreciate the fact that there always is something deeper. Um, but also there's a humility. Um, the humility and faith has always been modeled really well by both my parents, um, but even my father who has this massive amount of education and learning and, and he's read, you know, innumerable amounts of books about topics. And, and But he's always, I think, shown me what it means to be humble in what you know, even at a such a um, with such a high degree of of education. Hmm. And so I would say that the thing that was hard was that that I was invited into a space of not settling for easy answers. Hmm. Um, I could have very much done that in other contexts. I, I I was never satisfied with that. And it's the it was a blessing and a curse because obviously it led me into a educational journey of my own in theology. But um, I think the gracious, the good thing about it is that that's a model that I actually deeply appreciate about the faith that I've I've learned is that um, the easy answers are not the ones that satisfy in the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things I, I love about your dad and one of the things I think 
has helped is he also has modeled um, the church. The church sometimes can uh, settle for easy answers, but uh, I always feel like in your dad's case, he's been able to be uh, inquisitive and, you know, try to push folks to think a little more deeply, but to do that without cynicism um, or without being overly critical of the, the genuine faith of, of your kind of average layperson, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember one time uh, <laughs> he, he was teaching a class on the book of revelation um, in Sunday school. I, I was there with him that one that day and someone stood up and, and gave this very strange uh, like interpretation <laughs> of revelation that included at that time, the upcoming political election and um, all different kinds of things. And, and I remember I was like thinking, he's like, oh man, what's <laughs> what's he gonna do with this? And his response was like, that's a very interesting insight. Let's unpack that. And then he he went into kind of like uh, a brief engagement that gently steered the uh, uh, the conversation away from kind of some of the more errant stuff back to the points that he was trying to make. And hmm. I, I deeply appreciated that because in the, in that moment, like he could have, I, I guess, crushed you know yeah. that person the i think of like the social media model that we have now like i got to destroy the person if you think they're wrong but that's never been the the thing that i've seen embodied in him (laughs) so you not always not only uh followed in the footsteps of faith but in many ways also followed a, uh, a kind of similar academic journey so talk a little bit hank about your own academic journey yeah well i i had this very um uh, ambitious idea when I left college to um, pursue music uh, professionally. I went to Trevecca. Everyone in my family on two sides, uh, for the most part, who went to college went to Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville, and I went there as well. I actually remember printing off applications to other schools, and they mysteriously disappeared in my house. Um, so that was always really funny. I think it was just kind of destined that I was going to go to Trebek and that's fine. I wouldn't trade my time at Trebek for anything. It was a wonderful experience. And at the end of my first year, my, my family and, and my church had told me, is like, you know, I, I, I think you've got gifts with music. You could probably create a career out of music if you wanted to as like a band director. I, I had a very deep passion for marching band and things like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, but my church and my um, pastors, my youth pastors, my college pastor, and my, my, my father says, you really do have this aptitude for theology. I think you should take a few classes. <laughs> um and so I took a I took a class intro to like Christian ministry and another class intro to philosophy, and I remember in the intro to philosophy class we read um, Augustine's Confessions, and it was this weird moment. I, I think every person who goes into studying theology academically or professionally in any kind of capacity has that moment where they open up a text for the first time and they kind of see themselves in it. And I just had this very deep sense and resonance when I was reading the confessions um, that I was home, right? Because mm-hmm. Augustine talks about this far country um, that, you know, you you journey to, but, you know, paradoxically also journeys to you in, in a certain sense. And I, I very much deeply resonated with that because I had a very anxious heart <laughs> and still do in some sense. And, and Augustine's kind of, you know, statements there at the early part of the confessions about the restless hearts really deeply stuck with me. And 
I remember the line that really said, that made me think like maybe I should should read this stuff more. It was Augustine talking about searching for answers and like the the books of the Platonists, and he he doesn't find he finds some things, but he doesn't find everything. And he, he says this like really provocative line, but that the the word of God would become flesh and dwell among us. I didn't find there, and he found that later in you know scripture and theology and the study of that, and that I think pushed me into. That consider well maybe the academic study of theology is something i should consider and so within that year i i switched majors i became a religion major with a pastoral ministry minor and a philosophy minor and took all the philosophy and theology classes i could actually took extra ones i'm sure i pretty much annoyed my professors at trevecca because i was always asking them can i was like can i do a directed study on on this um and they they were gracious and and very kind in letting me kind of pursue those questions and things like that and um and so I, I started there reading a lot of um like books on ethics and uh, the first book I remember reading that I think really excited me was this this book by uh, Stanley Harawas called The Community of Character mm, me too yeah and um, it, it was it was just I was in enthralled by it <laughs> and i i it was around the time of the 2008 election and harawas actually came to nashville and spoke at a university across town and i went and saw him there and here to hear him kind of talk about like the community of faith and things like that um was really at the time very formative for me and so um my dad said well why don't you look at going to duke um divinity school and you can study with the man himself and so I started fervently applying <laughs> to places and and I hoped that Duke would accept me and I got early admissions and I, I think I even called up all the other schools that um, that I applied to and told them I was like, I'm going to Duke. Um, so <laughs> take my name off the list and things like that and went down to Duke. And the thing that was interesting about that is that I, I went down to Duke and Duke at the time still is probably I haven't been back in a while. There was a lot of people that want to study theology. And I very much found myself kind of like a very small fish in a very big ocean of people because there was not only just students, there was professors who were like these world-renowned thinkers. I mean, Howard Wass among them. And um, and I realized just how big theology was. And it was, it was kind of scary <laughs> at the mm -hmm. time. But um, I had enough people who kind of spoke into me at that time who were like fellow students um, who said that, you know, you may not be an academic like this PhD student, but there's something you have to offer that I think is valuable and worthwhile. I think I probably would have quit if it wasn't for those people. Uh, highest among them was my roommate at the time. At the time, Luke. He was, he was somebody who's now a Methodist pastor, and he he was very much like gracious and kind to me, and said, you know, you still have something to say. And my family and church also were still like, you have you have something to say, and so you should keep pushing this. And so, I applied to a bunch of doctoral schools at the end of my time, realizing that Christian ethics was where I wanted to land, and I uh, ended up at um, Garrett Evangelical Seminary. I only got accepted in one place, but that's luckily all you need. Um, and, uh, and it's funny you had my advisor on a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> Brent yeah. water, uh, and, um, he was, he was great and it was a great time, very different kind of world, uh, moved from the hot summers of uh, 90 degree, you know, humidity of North Carolina to the coldest winter, uh, in sh Chicago for like 10 years. And so, um, but it was just, it was a different kind of environment. And I loved the, just like the conversations that I got to have with um, my fellow PhD students. And it, it felt very different in a way of like relating to my professors because 
I was at a different kind of academic level and like the skill I developed there. I, I remember just pacing the floors at night reading these books because I was almost haunted by the thoughts that I saw within them in a good way. Um, and it was it was wonderful. Um, I finished five years later and, you know, published my first book, working on my second. And, you know, I've just been still just after all these years, just enamored with the questions of theology and um, still feel that energy every time I open up a, a new theology book to read. It's it's for me an act of worship um, in a very real sense of like to know, like, you know, to, to seek to, you know, the motto of Mount Vernon Nazarene University, for example, is to seek to learn, is to seek to serve. And I feel that very deeply, but it, it could be even just like with, with Anselm, you know, I, I've always thought of my life as kind of a faith that is seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and theology has always been like a, a place of home, a, a place of safety, a place of comfort for me. Hmm. So I, I didn't prepare you for these next questions, Hank, but I've been listening uh, to some of the podcasts, uh, talking to Nazarenes about your age, some who've stayed, some who've who've left to go serve in other denominations. And as I listen, that part of me grieves, but part of me is realizes, uh, you know, there's one body of Christ, uh, but several different uh, manifestations, if you will, denominationally and traditionally of, of that body. But um we're about a decade and a half or more apart. But when I went to Fuller, I had that experience of, wow, like I feeling, like you said, like I'm a now a small fish in a big pond. And uh, I'm not sure I was a big fish in a small pond before, but it, I sure felt more comfortable than, than the overwhelming sense of all these traditions. After experiencing mm-hmm. all of those conversations at Duke and at Garrett, uh, part of me wants to ask what, what brought you back uh, to service in this particular denomination and and what were some of maybe the things that you learned to value outside of the church or maybe even critiques that you've carried with you as you as you've come back is that mm-hmm. is that fair yeah that's that's a very fair question um you know it's i have some very earnest methodist friends at duke who very much regretted the fact that they didn't get me to convert to methodism um <laughs> During my time there, and and were very open in telling me about how angry they were that I never became Methodist. Um, and in fact, I told them, you know, I thought about like as a joke later in life, actually becoming Methodist, and and just to see how they would react now. But <laughs> um, uh, but it was, I mean, I went from I remember talking to the president of Treveca um, at the time, and and he was talking about how he went from Treveca to NCS to McCormick, um, which is also in Chicago, and he felt like there there needs to be a movement outside of the church to help the church engage in new conversations. So he, mm-hmm. he, he expressed it, um, Dan Boone at the time was like opening up a window to kind of let some fresh air in right. is what it means for to send students to other schools to get kind of theologically formed in order for them to come back. And that kind of stuck with me. But I mean, in terms of like why I came back and this is, you know, I wish that this would, this was a more grandiose answer, but I felt in some sense a responsibility to all the people whom without I would not have survived to this point in my life. Uh, like I think, for example, like of my college pastor in Nashville, um, I have a just the most wonderful experience with the church in my four years of college. Uh, my parents actually, after my freshman year, my father and mother moved to Kansas City because he took a job at Nazarene Theological Seminary, but we have been going to the same church in Nashville, Nashville First Church of the Nazarene. Um, 
since I was in second grade, uh, second or third grade, I want to say. And I developed these relationships with people that were just really wonderful. And, and the one I think I valued the most was with my college pastor. Um, and and he, I think, spent just <laughs> hours upon hours sitting with me, processing theological questions that I had. Um, he was a Vandy grad at the time. And so for me, I always had a model of like a pastor who was a deeply educated person. And so I felt a responsibility to be that for someone else inside yeah. of the Church of Nazarene. And like, you know, a lot of my friends, too, have left the Church of the Nazarene and gone on to other things. And I, you know, I echo your feeling of grieving, but, you know, recognizing the broader ecumenical nature. But for me, um, you know, I, I experienced the same amount of church hurt that they did from from Nazarenes inside the denomination. But I also have to admit all the people who've loved and supported me and and like, you know, wished me well along the way have also been Nazarene. <laughs> and so right, right. without them, I wouldn't have made it into the education uh, levels that I had and and the ones who kind of just like supported me that I even really never met. <laughs> hmm. um, the impression of that upon me has always been something um uh, like, so I'll, I'll share this story. Um, when I was going through the ordination process, um, districts for a lot of Nazarene churches, like require some type of assessment. And um, on my district here, um, I had um, completed, I hadn't completed the assessment here, but I completed it in North Carolina before I left. And I remember uh, forgetting just because of the rhythms of school and life and stuff like that, that I needed to get that assessment done. But I thought that I could just call down to North Carolina and get that assessment sent up here. And I called down and I talked to three people. I was like, oh yeah, we don't have any record that you did that. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. And I said, and, and I was, I was okay with it. Like I, I was willing to wait a year and go through the assessment process again. But um, the DS of North Carolina, like unprompted by me, he wrote this beautiful letter um, talking about me and I'd never met him. And the the kind of like work that North Carolina does with its like people going through the process and like and, and showing how it connected to the assessment that my district required. And he sent it and my DS accepted it. And I was just, you know, completely dumbfounded that um, these two DSs were willing to like work with me. Sure. And, you know, that's a level of support that you know, I don't take lightly. And so the, the Nazarene church has always been so good to me. Uh, and I feel kind of a responsibility to give back. And in my current role, um, I'm attempting to give back within that line. Um, and, you know, to answer your sec second question about like the things that I've held on to from the bigness of it, I, I realized that there's so many different ways, for example, that other denominations think through uh, certain perspectives on like holiness or even justice. There's just so many great voices out there to learn from. And I think one of the things I've learned is this deep appreciation for ecumenical dialogue um, and mm -hmm. like working across um, denominational lines. Um, because I think the the thing that Duke, for example, taught me is like this, this deep appreciation for the sacraments that we all participate in is, is something that's more fundamental to our identity as Christians than our church membership. And so um, that's something we can share across. And I mean, I think the, the criticisms is uh, the criticism I kind of keep uh, is that like, 
like with Dan Boone, like you said, there's there's value in opening up a window or two every once in a while to let a new kind of breeze come in. And so like one of my favorite theologians is a reformed guy <laughs> named Karl Barth. And, you know, not he's not very Wesleyan holiness, but he has a lot of great things to say to Wesleyans. And so um, I think opening that window like is is something that is a helpful tool for us to 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 think about in terms of the conversations we have as a denomination. Yeah, and I and it probably did this for you too. I think being outside for a little bit, at least studying outside, allowed me to have a deep appreciation for some of the really good things. I mean, in some ways, I was able to go, you know, um, for example, our approach to scripture, I think, is actually a pretty thoughtful one, and uh, yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate or um, and the Wesleyan warm-heartedness, uh, but that's rooted mm-hmm. in uh, a Protestant understanding of salvation by grace through faith. Like all those things are really, um, it helped me to appreciate some things even, and not just critique things too. So tell folks a little bit about your current position, Hank. Um, I am the associate campus pastor and associate professor of theology at Mount Vernon Nazarene University in a little town called Mount Vernon, Ohio. (laughs) Um, And my primary role is serving in campus ministry, but I have um, a secondary assignment to the School of Christian Ministries where I I teach church history and ethics um, as my primary um, disciplines. And it's it's a lot of fun. I've got a lot of really great students, um, a lot of really passionate students. I think I, I just got done with a cycle of church history with a, a wonderful group of students that were um, just so inquisitive and thoughtful and interesting in terms of like the questions they asked. And I, I mean, you know, this it's like the gift of good students is just such a, a wonderful thing that I mean, I would do for free <laughs> if I uh, if I had to. And so it was. Um, but, yeah, that's what I do um, in my current season. That's great. You know, part of my desire in doing this podcast was to try to keep the church and the academy connected. And so, you know, I, mm-hmm. I get to go across the street. In many ways, we replicate each other. You don't necessarily go across the street to a local church, but you are working hard, Hank, to try to keep uh, pushing folks uh, intellectually, but also meeting them, meeting students on a day-to-day basis in, in ministry uh, mm-hmm. I I have a deep appreciation, especially for campus ministers these days, and the challenges and difficulties uh, that you face. Talk a little bit about what what are the what are some of the blessings of what you get to do, especially on the campus ministry side these days. But what are what are some of the unique challenges of this moment in that role? Um, yeah, I mean, the, I told um, my boss, um, who is just such a, a brilliant pastor and thinker, and she helps me understand like really deeply the the role that ministry plays in a college campus. And we were talking one day, and I said, the thing that's that's most fascinating to me about college ministry is that you know you could have a kid who walks into your office, whom and I this happened once. I had a kid who came in and he's taking a science class for the first time, um, like on a major level and was really starting to think through the implications of science versus like the answers he's been given um, in in church about creation and things like that. And he was trying to bring those things together and he's having this deep faith crisis. And so we walked through scripture and science, which requires, you know, a quite a bit of like, you know, <laughs> knitting together of like different concepts and things like that, which I deeply appreciated, you know, the education I went through to do that. Um, 
but then, you know, I, the next student I have come in, you know, is, is dealing with, um, suicidal thoughts or something like that. Hmm. And so you're kind of every day when you step into the office, um, you know, you have, cause you're basically living with them because on campus, um, you know, they live here. And so their rhythms are very much tied to place. And even though I get to go home at the end of the day, like it's when I enter onto this campus, I enter into their home in a certain sense. Um, and so they know where you're at. They know what you, well, what, what your office hours are and things like that. And so you're, you're kind of in, in, inducted into this rhythm of life for them. And it's a roller coaster. Uh, I mean, I've had full days of just meeting with students, you know, doing different kinds of pastoral counseling um, from everything of like answering deep theological questions to walking a student over to counseling to receive like, you know, some inpatient care for psychological distress and things mm -hmm. like that. You know, I've visited students in, in, in the hospital, you know, who are um, kind of at their wits end and, you know, and married students off <laughs> on the happiest day of their life. And so, you know, I'd say that um, the, the blessing and curses are kind of on the same side of like on the, on two sides of the same coin. Because the blessing and curse is that you're with students, and that means you're with them in their most difficult times, and you're with them in their most precious of times, and you get to celebrate everything in between. Mm -hmm. um, these students are just so, um, just so um, courageously open, you know, with yeah. you in campus ministry. And, you know, it, it matters that you're a trustworthy person, and you try and, like, be that kind of, like, good voice for them to talk to, but... Um, that's, that's been the blessings, but also the difficulties. I, I, I love that old kind of sermon illustration for pastors that, um, you know, the pastor who complains about never really getting to do any ministry because he's constantly getting interrupted by the needs of his people. And the, you know, <laughs> the bishop saying, you know, Hey, <laughs> that, that is your ministry. <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll be sitting in my office writing my, the next great sermon, I'm sure, uh, to deliver in chapel and, and be interrupted. But that's, that's the, the work, you know, that's the work you do. Um, the most holy of conversations I've had, I think, 10 minutes prior to me needing to be somewhere else. Um, and that's always been a lesson to me is to, in humility, again, never take your schedule so seriously that you can't allow those moments of grace to kind of interrupt you. And I think the challenges in our present time are are not too difficult from the local parish. I think, as as you know, and I know you've talked about, there's just a lot of seismic shifts happening in our culture and our world, and especially for the students who end up here at MVNU, um, they are very much um, trying to find their way, trying to find footing amidst, you know, all of the um, rhetoric and extreme conversation and politics and popular culture about like uh, the world. And, and they're confronted with, I, you know, I jokingly tell my students, I said, before you get to my class, and I was teaching an 8 a.m. class to this point, I said, you've already consumed more media than most of human history did in their entire life. <laughs> right. uh, and that's significant. Like you're constantly barraged with images and pictures and thoughts and sound bites that try and claim your attention. And, you know, it's, it's, you're having to assimilate all of that information down into one lived existence. And so yeah. I think the challenge is just in this life is trying to, and this ministry is trying to help students find their footing um, amidst kind of the, the world that we live in today yeah no it's it's an amazing challenge not just the social world outside and inside but also I, i'm not sure people fully appreciate how difficult it is to be with students who have all the answers and want to guard them and for the first right. time are asking some questions or 
students who came with all the answers, but they really desperately want to throw those off right now. And you don't want them to lose all of those. But then on oh, the yeah. other extreme, students who come and they don't even know what the right questions to ask yet are. Um, and uh, and everything in between, as you said, it's just, uh, it's a unique blessing to get to do that. But it's also brings some unique challenges, especially when you're oh, in an yeah. institution where uh, various constituents are also paying attention to how how you handle those things too. So. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, the pastor, uh, Stephanie, my boss, Stephanie Lobdell, she, she said this, I think very brilliantly. She's like, we preach in chapel to everyone from the, the, the kid who grew up in Bible quizzing, who can recite Romans from chapter one, verse one to the end <laughs> from memory. Um, and the person who's never opened a Bible and never darkened the door of a church in their entire lives. And you've got to deliver some type of message that reaches them and then everyone in between. In between, yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like, how do you help students hold certain answers with grace while also ushering in, you know, correct answers and helpful right. answers, all while not appearing to the constituents like you're a, a godless liberal who's <laughs> corrupt their child? <laughs> right. So, right. Well, good luck yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, there's still a lot to come in my conversation with Hank, but I want to take just a moment and encourage you to get connected to the book we're about to talk about. His book entitled "The Just and Loving Gaze of God with Us." Paul's Apocalyptic Political Theology, published by Whitfenstock. The book's available on Amazon in paperback and electronic or Kindle editions. It's a very deep and thoughtful reflection on how our political ideas ought to be shaped in the light of the new creation. If you're a regular listener and are enjoying these podcasts, do us a favor. Go to the podcast page on whatever podcast service you use, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't, and leave us a rating and maybe even a review. Your input will help others find us. Also, if you haven't done it yet, like our Facebook page at New Creation Conversations. It's a good way for us to keep in contact with you and let you know of the great conversations coming each week. Thanks as always for staying connected to these conversations. Now let me get back to my conversation with Dr. Hank Spaulding. Well, let's talk about the two projects, one that's out and one that you're working on. So let's mm-hmm. deal with the one that's out first. Let's talk about the just and loving gaze of God with us, Paul's apocalyptic political theology, a book you published a couple of years ago, maybe almost three years ago now with Whip and Stock. Um, it is heady. It's your dissertation uh, yeah. <laughs> brought down a little bit. Um, so in it, you, you talk a lot about Paul and the renewed interest in Paul's work. So let's start there. Why, why do you think Paul has become so interesting in the last few decades, and especially uh, kind of political and philosophical interest in in Paul's writing? What what's going on there, Hank? Yeah, I mean, I think that many like people who grew up in the church who look at the book would probably recognize the fact that a lot of Christians read Paul politically. I mean, Romans thirteen is kind of a major passage that you hear a lot from politicians. I remember hearing, uh, for example. Um, uh, Jeffries, who at the time during, I think, the previous administration was the attorney uh, general, and he quoted Paul to talk about immigration. And so that language of Paul is kind of there in the popular culture. But it's it's interesting, like within, like, I, I actually uh, kind of anecdotally, I'll, I'll share this story. I remember um, I was preparing my dissertation, um, like, concept and giving it to my advisor. Um, and it was, at the time, it was to kind of study, like, uh, Karl Barth and and Hans-Jürgen von Balthasar with an idea of like pairing them together. But I lost my um, external person that was going to do the Balthasar stuff. And so my advisor and I were like, okay, what do we do? I got I to gotta propose something pretty quick here. And I had bought this book um, 
by um, uh, Giorgio Gambin. He's an Italian philosopher. He's one of the guys I read about in the book. And he basically wrote a commentary on Romans. <laughs> I, thought, I was like, this is a very curious thing because he's not a <laughs> he's not a Christian. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't believe, um, you know, in the way that we would traditionally like associate with that language of being a Christian. Um, I was like, this is just fascinating. And I remember picking that up in, in the university bookstore because Northwestern is right on right next to the campus of um, Garrett. And uh, I was just I was reading. It. I was like, this is fascinating stuff it has nothing to do with with god but it's fascinating and i i i brought that up to my advisor and i said can i write on this i think this is really interesting he's like yeah you can write on that but you can't just write on that author you got to pick some other people and then we can talk about like paul and politics and so i was like well i'll see if i can find anybody and then lo and behold um i found out that there's actually like you know whole like publishing arm of of like as uh, kind of um for lack of a better term um non-theistic philosophers who read paul and try and do like political stuff and and i realized that um it kind of i mean it goes back to like frederick nietzsche and people like that who are themselves like realizing that paul is kind of a part of this general canon of western culture mm. that formed a lot of people i mean you know obviously like people like Immanuel Kant and you know all the like the Enlightenment thinkers are reading the scriptures in their own ways and kind of interpreting them for their own projects and and so in some sense like these these new philosophers are picking up on this and saying okay let's do that again but in the present context and so um, what and I, I remember reading one kind of person who's also recognizing this trend and he says basically all these people see in Paul kind of an ally to their own political projects. And I found that completely fascinating because that is also a way that you could talk about like the political Christianity that's just a part of our American culture at this point in time. Like that's that's the same verbiage you could use verbatim to those who, um, you know, on varying sides of the perspective, perspective, um, political spectrum, I guess I should say, uh, think about Paul as an ally to help kind of aid them in their own kind of political like desires and thoughts and things like that. And so in some sense, I think it's kind of a recovery of, of a lot of um, older um, thinkers who, who did this in their own way, but now just for the, for the present moment, and we're just seeing a lot of it right now hmm. as, as it is. So can, can you give uh, folks I'm familiar with that conversation, maybe an example of how somebody outside of historical Christian faith might use Paul kind of like using Plato's Republic as a way of mm -hmm. validating a particular political perspective. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's fascinating. One of my favorites is one of the first people I read about in the book. His name is Jacob Tobbs. And and he's a, a Jewish philosopher um, whom is kind of working against the, 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 the political work of Carl Schmitt, um, who is a huge legal theorist for for Hitler, actually, um, during the Third Reich. And so Jacob Tobbs is kind of writing his own like work against that. And one of the people he uses is Paul. And and it's interesting because he talks about how, like, you know, Paul is in his book very clearly. So I, I think about like um in Galatians, where Paul talks about like uh, God being revealed against this present and evil age. Um, or like this kind of uh, like First Corinthians 15, where Christ is defeating enemies and and defeating the powers of sin and death. And Paul talks about very concentratedly the powers and principalities and around us. And, and Jesus is kind of in Paul's language, this kind of 
revolutionary in a certain sense that is overthrowing these sinful powers in order to liberate humanity from the powers of sin and death. I mean, that's all over Romans, for example. And so um, Jacob Tobbs, like he looks at that and he sees an ally because, you know, he's uh, in his own way under a different set of like evil powers. He's Jewish, right? And he's, mm-hmm. he's witnessing the rise of the Third Reich and seeing kind of the anti-Semitism in Europe. And so the the kind of the rhetoric of like overthrowing those powers is very, very attractive to him. And so he uses that as a way to usher in his own kind of political uh, perspective, which is an insistence on the revolution. And so he has this very deep like alliance with saying right, there has to be a revolution. But instead of it being like Christ's revolution against the powers of sin and death, it's a physical revolution where we overthrow um, and overrun. And so it's a very, um, you can see how like, you know, he uses this language. He can, he strips the, the God piece out of it um, and mobilizes it towards his own ends of what he wants to do um, with it, which is this kind of like appeal for a revolution hmm. um, in his own time and context. And I, it's, it's fascinating to me to see um, how these different philosophers do this. I think it's, it's kind of cool and neat. Now, granted, you're not going to have like a Bible study or local church over it, but um, <laughs> it, it is, it is just interesting to see how these other people like read Paul. So for example, and I mean, you'll appreciate this, Scott, cause you, you probably sat through a few of these, but um, anyone who's been to like, uh, like an academic conference um, and, you know, there's all these people in this room here to hear this like really important thinker and they're like taking notes and asking questions. And at Giorgio Gaman, there's this really great video and he actually just has in front of him a Bible and he's reading from Romans and he's asking these questions about it. In some sense, it felt like a very kind of like secular form of a sermon <laughs> because it's all these like non-theistic philosophers in this room that he's kind of lecturing from this Bible that he has just laid out in front of him and he's making these abstract philosophical points but you know if, if you're just watching the video like on silent you'd think that the Gombin was leading a bible study <laughs> in a certain <laughs> sense and it's it's you know it's funny like yeah it's funny to see that but um because as like christians looking at that we'd be like this is weird what's what's going on here but it also gives a great similar language across like academic interests like so i can talk to somebody <clears throat> For example, who's not a Christian, but who's studying Agamben, and we can talk about Paul, and I think really powerful mm-hmm. ways um, that I really enjoy. And yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I, I picked this project was that it was kind of like a fun challenge to think about how we talk about Paul across a whole spectrum of of interests. So if I get the book right, you're using the language of just and loving gaze to describe mm-hmm. what those thinkers who are using Paul don't quite get about what Paul is doing. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So what is it that Paul is doing that they don't quite capture? Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this gets at, I think, a broader kind of problem with modern politics, especially since the, you know, the the modern enlightenment period is that <clears throat> there's this, I think, deep desire to come up with a perfect like constitution or set of ideas or universal principles that will dictate how we go about our work in society. And all of these thinkers, I think, use Paul towards constructing that end. Um, none of them, you know, write like a new constitution, but um, they, in their own ways, like I said, use Paul to kind of like construct these really great systems of ideas Um and one of the things I really love about Paul is he is obsessed with like particular 
context. <laughs> so he's always writing these letters to these church members, talking to them about the problems that they're having at their local churches. <laughs> hmm. And he's using kind of his like theological world that he's he's developing to help address those specific problems. And so one of the things, for example, like one of the French um, French philosophers, Alain Badu, he uh, he has this great idea about like the rupture that Christ causes and the way it reorganizes community around that rupture. But he has he's so obsessed with this idea of finding this like really abstract principle that will help everyone live their lives the way that they need to that he completely empties it of any way of articulating something like particular. So he talks about victimhood as a concept instead of like specific victims, like those who suffer in the Holocaust. And that's something they all suffer with. They they want a perfect kind of like category for everything that neglects the real people who suffer, right? So Agamben very famously writes a book on the Holocaust as a way to construct like the ideal victim. <laughs> but he neglects the fact that, you know, that idea of victimhood, while powerful and important, neglects the person who's gone through slavery. It's a, it's a different kind of suffering. And it's mm -hmm. one that, you know, mm -hmm. it can't be embraced. There's no perfect universal concept because it, it always privileges a specific group of people. And for Agamben, it's European people. Um, and so people from the global South are kind of left out of his system. Hmm. And so Paul, like I use this language of the just and loving gaze, which I borrow from Iris Murdoch. And if you love like British literature, Iris Murdoch is your person. She is a great novelist, <laughs> but also a wonderful philosopher. Um, and she uses this way of talking about like a particular kind of attention that we give to each other. And what I see in that is very Pauline because Paul is telling his people like, you know, what Christ has done should orient you towards loving your concrete neighbor who's sitting next to you in the pew, right? In that particular way. And one of the passages I talk about a bunch in the throughout the book is the meat offered idols, which is kind of an antiquated passage of scripture. We don't really deal with that. But I still think it is supremely relevant for our time because Paul in there is just telling them, hey, you need to pay attention to the needs of your neighbor. You can't just like privilege your own systems of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to um, actually reject constructing such a system in order to fit your needs to this person. And so Paul, I think, through the language of Christ's incarnation, actually encourages people to develop a posture more than a set of ideas um, towards each other and towards the world. And so while it's fun to construct this system of ideas, and I, I think it's there's a lot of really fun things to think and talk about with that. Um, if we neglect the fact that Paul calls us to a particular kind of attention to our neighbor, a particular kind of neighbor love, then we've missed Paul altogether. Because those ideas may never get to the concrete needs of our neighbor, but that attention will. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that I think they missed that. And I, and I think that um, when it comes to modern politics, like even outside of these philosophers, we think of like the correct political posture as being like right <laughs> or having the right set of ideas or, you know, we check all the right boxes. But and we often use that as kind of a shield to push away our neighbors that very much deeply require our love and attention. Um, and Paul is trying to sift through all of that and say, no, no, this <laughs> faithfulness doesn't look like you just thinking the right thoughts. It's it's you performing the right faithful actions towards one's neighbor. Um, which I term the just and loving gaze just because I love that turn of phrase. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think it like it definitely 
proposes that there is this reality there that needs to be seen, glimpsed, and loved that is human and beautiful. And we just need to stop like <laughs> trying to fit every other person into our set of ideas, but to instead completely submit ourselves to the needs of our neighbors. Hmm. Is there a kind of on the ground Hank way that that project speaks to the way then that you, and maybe you're talking about it here, but ways that this project has made you think about day-to-day ministry. And, and so uh, for somebody who, who won't be able to work through all the philosophy that you're right, yeah. able to do in the project, <laughs> what what's kind of the message that, that you've yeah. carried with you into the ministry? Yeah. And I, I realized that with the, it's funny. I, I, when my book came out, one of these, I was a pastor at the time. Uh, and one of these ladies, these very, this very sweet old lady who just recently passed away, she bought the book and attempted to read it. And she told me, she's like, I had to look things up, but I enjoyed it for what it was. And I, I so appreciated the fact that she tried knowing that she probably didn't get all of the good things, but yeah, on the ground um, for me, because I think we all do this. This is a natural tendency. Like we we have this kind of bias towards stuff we know and stuff that makes sense to us. Um, and we develop certain caricatures of other people that oftentimes serve as like excuses to ignore them, to push them aside and to, mm. you know, to think I, I, this person's not engaging. And I, you see that all the time in terms of politics these days. Like, oh, that's just, they're just a liberal. And so we don't need to listen to them or right. they're just a stuck up conservative or something like that. Um, and for me, you know, I'll, I'll say it like a, a story. I remember early in my career, um, there was a person like I needed a job. I was in desperate need of some money. And there was a person who kind of very actively campaigned against me getting a job. And I was very salty and angry. And for the rest of my life, I only ever saw them in light of that imagined slight that I have. And then years later, full circle, I'm here at MVNU and that person is moving their son onto campus. <laughs> and, you know, there's a part of me that's like, ah, this is, this is the moment, you know? And then I remember, and it's, it's, you know, there's this moment where they're in the calf and they're talking. And I just, I, I see him crying because this is his only son, um, you know, finally moving out of the house and he's having this very emotional moment. And in that, in that time, I didn't see an enemy anymore. I saw a father who is dealing with like, you know, the the complexities of their son growing older, moving out of the house and, you know, moving on with their lives. And, and there's this really beautiful moment. Um, in, for example, one of my favorite novels called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, uh, between these two figures and one of them hates the other and he's so angry and, and he sees this moment of humanity in this person. And he says, and in that moment I forgave him. <laughs> and I felt that very much in my heart too. Like, mm-hmm. I, he wasn't the caricature that I thought, you know, he wasn't the monster that I had, you know, like convinced myself that he was. Instead, he was just a father. And so the Justin Loving Gaze is this kind of ability to push back beyond our prejudices and really see the the fragile humanity that is corely a part of each of us. Like, no one is really the monster we make them out to be. No one's the political opponent or 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 evildoer that we make them out to be but ministry is about seeing that deeply human created by god thing that's in every single one of us and knowing that 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 thing is worthy of love um in its 
complexity and brokenness. And for me, it's it's a challenge to constantly move past my own prejudices, which we all have them. I'm not saying there's no non-prejudicial person. Um, we have them to different degrees, but for me, the ministerial piece is to, to suspend judgment and to act lovingly towards a person um, so that I may get past my prejudices and really, you know, minister <laughs> with them and to them as necessary for their needs. There's just a few minutes left in my conversation with Hank. Let me take a moment and let you know about a new podcast we have coming out in just a couple of months. On the 1st of October, we're launching a podcast called The Story. The subtitle is This Changes Everything. It will be a daily podcast that will invite you to read through the Bible with us in a year. And each day will include brief reflections on what you'll be reading for that day. And then every week or so, there will be an additional extended interview with the various authors of the new Beacon Bible Commentary. We'll be interviewing them on what they learned as they wrote on each of the sections of the scripture covered in that volume of the commentary. Our hope is that it will be a helpful tool for people who want to work through the Bible either in a year or at their own pace. So we'll be releasing it day by day from October 1st, 2022 through the end of September 2023. But after that, it'll be there as a permanent resource for anyone who wants to read all the way through the scripture, the story that changes everything. We're really excited about this new resource and we're excited to make it available soon. Thanks as always for connecting into these weekly conversations. Here's the end of my conversation with Dr. Hank Spaulding. We'll spend a few minutes talking about the project that's in the works. Uh, Sometime when it's out, we'll have to come back and talk more fully about it, but you've got a work in progress called working title iconoclastic sex is that right that is that is correct all right so it's an interesting title but it's actually it's kind of about sex trafficking on the one hand uh, as an issue but it's also about how i mean you say in the in the working project that um you don't feel like you have to work real hard to convince not just Christians, but really anybody that sex trafficking is a bad thing. Right. But you're kind of making the argument that some of the ways that we have shaped our sexual ethic as Christians actually is not helpful mm-hmm. to what happens in sexual trafficking. So, so unpack that just a little bit for us. Yeah. yeah. And this one is I'm, I'm Margaret Farley. She's one of my favorite ethicists on, especially on sexual ethics. She she says that, you know, ethicists don't really set the uh, the pattern for their own thought, kind of like the world around them does. And I was gifted to have many students who left here and even my own sister works with um, survivors of trafficking and and all the different levels. And, and so this is something that kind of came to me as, a, as an interest, because one of the women who is now attends a local Nazarene church mentioned uh, to me just on a visit up there, she said, you know, the thing that is really hard is that I have this sexual past and I just feel like a lot of the church's teachings around sexuality, like I'm already behind the game when it comes to trying to enter into a conversation with it. Hmm. And that, that was deeply like moving to me. Cause I was like, I could imagine her spot, like she's trying to live a good life and, you know, she gets to the teaching on sexuality and she's like, you know, I I don't fit this mold in any way, shape, or form, and there's really no access point for me in there. And so I started doing some research, and I realized that sex trafficking, even though we think of like the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where you know girls are kind of abducted 
um, like in and sent overseas and things like that. That's not the face of trafficking. It's it's actually it looks more like domestic violence, like relationships between like a boyfriend and a girlfriend, where um, the girlfriend's access to food and, and and housing and any kind of resource and safety is kind of um, completely guarded by the boyfriend. And and usually what happens in those very abusive relationships is that the the boyfriend will um coerce the girlfriend into um you know doing sex for sale like having sex with some of his friends for money or for mm-hmm. other people for money to try and convince them to do that and so um that's a very different set of circumstances and what i found in studying um like sexual christian sexual ethics at least in the popular um evangelical sense is that there's this great emphasis on purity which you know it comes from the bible you know that's that's not saying that's completely unfounded theologically but the problem is is that over the course of like the late 80s 90s and early 2000s there's this kind of morph morphing into this idea that purity was this personal possession and once you lose it you kind of lose value um, and there's a, a huge movement from like um different organizations um to if you had a person in your house who um, lost their purity to kind of like push them out because their impurity could infect your purity, right? You know, Mm -hmm. or it might be a bad influence on, you know, your brothers and sisters. And so there's a certain kind of insecurity created by it because in a lot of our churches, again, you see this with a lot of different kinds of sexual ethics, like having the wrong sexual ethic can actually be detrimental to your presence within that community and you can be kind of forced out and if you're cut off from kind of resources and family and durable networks you're going to need to find it somewhere um and so there's a sense in which the the very like means by which trafficking is um seized upon like as a trafficking relationship occurs happens as a result of kind of insecurities that are created by a lot of different kinds of things and it's not just you know I'm not saying that, you know, purity culture ethics is the only thing responsible for right. sex trafficking. That would be far too much of a claim. But for a community that if they want to be interested in sex trafficking and kind of ending it, then there's there's a certain way we have to recognize that the logic of it is perpetuated through our sexual ethics. And so what does it look like to, to think about sexual ethics in a way that doesn't make it a barrier to community? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, even within the sense of like, what do we think about the ways in which it creates this self-image within, because uh, largely this focused on young women uh, throughout the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. If a woman loses her purity, right, for example, um, there's this kind of self-deprecation that they have to take on. And that same kind of like self-deprecation is is present in victims of, and uh, survivors of trafficking. You see that all over. And so um, what does it mean to change that notion? And then lastly, I mean, if we're looking at it in terms of domestic violence, if that is the way that it it does, like that it uh, that sex trafficking kind of emerges in our culture, then what does it look like to think about sexual ethics um, without these kind of harsh, um, you know, patriarchal kind of norms that could think of like sexual ethics as being something that, you know, uh, men possess and and women need to um, kind of be defended from. And so there's all these different kinds of like cultural things that I think that like participate in this like broader kind of like creation of insecurity, both financially and emotionally that create um, like the people who end up going into trafficking. And so 
even if your you know purity culture doesn't lead to like directly one person getting trafficked, we should question the fact that we participated in it in some way. Mm-hmm. And our sexual ethics should look so categorically different because it's good news. Um, it should look like good news to the person who's in the pew who has been trafficked, right? And it should look like good news to the person who's um, really dealing with like the questions of sexuality in their own lives. And so um, what I've noticed, especially in this study that I'm doing, is that the language and the ways that women who have gone through purity culture and the women who've gone through trafficking, the way that they've been taught to think about sex are really relatively the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that needs to shift. Is it fair to say, Hank, that sometimes we can look at cultures that we would categorize as kind of shame cultures? And mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes we've looked at those as somebody else's culture, um, and we can see right. the destructiveness that happens, both mm-hmm. in terms of two individuals in a family system or in a community system, but also the ways that can turn mm-hmm. into violence and other things. It, it seems to me like part of what you're arguing is as much as a heightened purity culture within the church was attempting to invite people to live into an ideal of what it means to uh, for our bodies to belong to, to God and for our bodies to be, to, to be glorifying. Mm-hmm. It is, we've inadvertently created a kind of shame culture then within the church that then does, it does, pushes people outside of the community into opportunities like sex trafficking, et cetera, but really doesn't have a, a real logic and language then for reconciliation of, of people right. who've experienced that or uh, who are, or who have fallen short of those purity ideals. Is that, is that yeah. a fair way to describe it? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I look at it just, I mean, case in point, you know, if for example, the the young girl in the youth department whom and I, well I'll, I'll share this story you know i had a friend from years ago who you know allowed me to share the story in the book um like she um she was sexually assaulted and there was a person she went to a, a like a, a medical facility to to talk a, like about that and get like you know examinations and things like that and the nurse who's a very well-meaning christian person said um well you know are you saving yourself for marriage and and the and the girl said yeah i you know i'm gonna wait for my husband and the nurse is like well you can't really do that anymore all you can do is kind of just hope that God forgives you <laughs> and then leaves right um you know in that instance you know the purity again the purity paradigm is like once you lose it it's gone forever and your value immediately diminishes and if that's the way we treat this person imagine how we would treat the person who's been trafficked in had sex countless numbers of times against their will right you know it's just it's either there or it isn't and so that you're right that shame culture kind of creates this um you know this desire to push out that which we see as impure you know there's this sense of like it's going to infect me if i'm around it too much Hmm. um this kind of disgust paradigm i talk about that in the book a little bit and that posture is I think the thing that prevents us from actually doing the good work that we that we need to do, do the reconciliation, because again, it's kind of permanent. It's thought of as permanent. Like, so there is no reconciliation mm. um, available. And so that's the challenge is to think, like to reorganize sexual ethics in such a way that it, it works against our tendency to have that kind of like disgust posture 
and move towards this language of like, we really need to be together. And my life is really enhanced by the community and the broadness of the community that I can be a part of. Mm. Um, and so that's why in the book, like theologically, I don't start with like the set of rules. I start with, okay, what is what does it mean that God reconciles us into beloved community yeah. um, with with God? And how can that motivation that God so desires to be with us, that God is willing to go through all these links to do that? What does that mean for the for the person in our community that we're leaving out, you know, or pushing out? Because God was not really <laughs> um, uh, interested in, in trying to leave anybody out of, I mean, on the cross, for example, he even has, he's bringing in these criminals into his own orbit, which I think is this really beautiful act of solidarity. Um, and so how how can that motivate our sexual ethics in such a way that we don't push people out anymore and, yeah. and try and allow them to exist with us and and for us and us for them? Yeah. Is it fair to say both works, Hank, seem to me um, end in kind of eschatological places? I mean, maybe it's right. it's it's good that we have a new creation conversation because it's right, yeah. <laughs> like both of them are done within the light of a new creation eschatology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is completely fair. I think that's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that. Are there ways uh, with that project? I know are, are interviews still ongoing. That project's still ongoing in some way. Yes, and so I mean, for those interested in the projects, um, I do a lot of like theological work and in, and in interpreting texts, but I also do a qualitative study, which is interesting for people who do more social scientific research. Um, where I do a parallel study, same study, but with people who are coming out of systems of trafficking and people who've grown up under purity culture teachings. Um, and part of that is I want to um, compensate these individuals for their times. Women who are coming out of trafficking in particular, like have a hard time securing work. And so for them to donate an hour to me would be, um, you know, not right. So I, I want to pay them and honor their time that they're donating. And so, you know, I'm, I raised, I tried to raise some money earlier in the summer and, and didn't work out. I had a grant for a while that, that was supposed to pay them. And so now I'm using some professional development money, but if you would like to contact me about contributing money to, um, the women that I will be interviewing in the study, um, all the money and the proceeds go towards them. Um, and the people who are helping me kind of like, you know, code the study there's, I mean, for those of you who are in, who know about, qualitative research, you know, the amount of hours that you spend combing through this kind of work. And so I, it's not very much, it's not my strength. And so I'm inviting and help people to help me do that who are mm -hmm. very competent in social scientific research. And so um, if you'd like to donate that, um, donate to that, like, please reach out and I'd be happy to take any donations and, and pass that along to the all, all proceeds. Like I said, go to the women in the study or the people who are helping me construct the study. That's so. great. That's great. Well, excited uh, to see the fruit of that project eventually. Um, so, you know, I, I love to ask people kind of a last question in these conversations, and that is what's giving you hope these days. And so, so Hank, as you do this work, um, what's giving you hope? You know, I, uh, I think of this in a lot of different ways, because there's a lot of reasons to not be in hope right now. <laughs> um, this the world's can be kind of depressing at certain points. But um in my work, especially with the second work that I'm doing, um, especially with my students, I, I've I've got several students who are just kind of on the ground, um like doing really hard, hard work. Um, 
for the for women who are who are you know getting out of systems of trafficking and it's really thankless um because like i mean with the precarity of trafficking like there are women who just think that you know they they weren't trafficked they just had a boyfriend and i think that's how a lot of people would understand their situation and you know the, the my my students who are working with them um are trying to help them see like you know hey you're kind of taking advantage of here and you know we want to help you um get out of that and develop better habits around like uh different activities in your life and we just want to be friends with you and things like that and i mean they have all kinds of really just tragic situations like girls running away girls um you know overdosing you know girls going back into the life and i remember asking i was like how do you asking one of my students i was like how do you um how do you do that day in and day out and she she told me this like really powerful line which is going to make it into the book i hope in some final form she says like the hope of the resurrection is that you know um is that this won't always be that way and it reminds me of um bonhoeffer who writes to ebhard Becker at the end of his life where he talks about all the pastors who've died because of the things he's taught and he says but there's this sense in which you know those lives that are cut short in the new creation will be able to play out into eternity and i think of like the profound healing that paul envisions in scripture around death and pain and suffering and and things like that and the way that it's redeemed and in some sense the thing that gives me hope today is to know that like all the brokenness that goes on in the world around us one day we'll find this like beautiful kind of fulfillment um in a way that they could have never imagined in this life (laughs) it'll bring together and allow like the young lives cut short to be able to grow into old age and um and in some ways that's that's for me i think the most hopeful thing that keeps me going Mm. at at the end of every day that it won't always be this way but that there's this this new reality that's breaking in even now that's making all things new Mm. Mm. that's great well Hank, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your teaching and your ministry on campus there and your continued work um, with Iconoclastic Sex and other cool projects. And so uh, thanks, friend. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for New Creation Conversations. This podcast is an extension of the ministry of Nampa College Church, New Creation Community Middleton, and New Creation Community Online. Connect with us by liking the Facebook pages of Nampa College Church and New Creation Conversations. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or other podcast services. If you like what you hear, help us reach out to others by sharing it with someone or leaving us a rating. Our music is a song called Sunny, provided by bensound.com. Our new Season 2 artwork was beautifully done by Carrie Daniels. To connect to the Word and Prayer Daily, download our new podcast, New Creation Common Prayer. For great resources for life and faith from a Wesleyan perspective, check out our friends at thefoundrypublishing.com. New podcast episodes are available each Wednesday. Thanks for helping me keep the church and the academy connected. Now go in Christ's peace.